Hey, thanks for downloading and listening to the New Life Church Downtown Podcast. We'd love to stay connected on Instagram at NLC Downtown Little Rock or TikTok at NLC Downtown. We have devotionals, audio from our weekend messages, conversations about big topics and culture today, and lots of options for you to become a disciple of Jesus. We aren't just a Sunday church. We want to be here for you Monday through Saturday too. Looking forward to getting to know you better. Good morning. How is everyone? You guys are way sleepier than the 930 service, and you have no excuse. How is everyone? I don't even know where this coffee came from. True story. I went into the office during prayer. I prayed earlier, don't worry, (laughs) because I was a little sleepy. And I went back there, and this coffee was just sitting on the coffee maker already made. So to whoever made this coffee... I very much appreciate it, and it got me back here on time. This is the Lord's coffee. That's funny. Or someone poisoned it. We'll find out. So if I I fall out, it was poisoned, and it was Neil, okay? Uh, Don't know why I accused him of that. Okay. Uh, Hey, over the next month or two, we're going to be working through answering some questions. We're doing a series called The Good News. Everybody say good news. Come on, say good news. Uh, have you noticed that we like bad news in our culture? Right? Go to any news site. Go to any news site. Me and Ian did this exercise a few weeks ago. He disagreed with me, but I know a lot about news, Ian. <laughs> He's a journalist. Okay. Uh, and, and, and if you go to any news site, it, it's dominated with bad news. Why? Because bad news gets attention more quickly. It spikes more quickly. But, but here's what we found. I was talking to Neil about this this week. Uh, statistics show that while bad news has a quick uh, trajectory to go up, it also has just as quick of a trajectory to go down. It doesn't last as long. The news cycle doesn't last as long. Good news, however, takes a while to take off, oftentimes, but it has a longer news cycle. It often gets more views. It gets more clicks. It gets more attention. You know, there is something to this for us. You know, Jesus said, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, right? He said it's like a mustard seed. It starts small, but then it grows, right? You know, the the good news is not something that always is attention-grabbing, but it's something that is trustworthy. And I believe the good news of Jesus isn't just trustworthy, but, but gives us answers for dealing with the problems we face as human beings. So here's the question we're going to attempt to answer over the next 8 to 12 to 18 weeks. I don't know how long this is going to go. Uh, we're going to attempt to answer the question each week, how is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the practical solution? Everybody say practical. Like really the practical solution to the problems that we face as individuals. Think about the issues that you face. How's the gospel the answer? And how's it the answer to the larger problems that we see as a culture and that we have to engage with and deal with? And so uh, I, I don't think there's a better place to start when, when it comes to answering the problems that humanity faces than the problem of sin, okay? So whenever you're studying uh, the scripture, there's something called the law of first origin. Everybody say first origin. Law of first origin. A- anytime you want to study something, it's always good to go back to its first occurrence in the scripture. And so today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 19. Um, 
Before we do that, I want to read uh, a quote. There's a guy named J.I. Packer. He, he has a book called uh, Concise Theology, and he, he gives uh, theological definitions in it. And this is how he defines sin. It says, Scripture diagnoses sin as a universal deformity of human nature found at every point in every person. Both Testaments, that's old and new, have names for it that display its ethical character as rebellion against God rule, God's rule. So sin is rebellion against God's rule. Sin is missing the mark God set for us to aim at. Sin is transgressing God's law. Sin is disobeying God's directives. And sin is offending God's purity by defiling oneself and incurring guilt before God the judge. And so this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the problem of sin and the good news of Jesus. And so uh, to do that, I've got my wife, Callie, here. She's got babies on board. Twins on the way. Callie, read this for us. Y'all follow along. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord God called the man. Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed, more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling on the dust, as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you, and all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though, I, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it's powerful. God, that it's effective, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. God, that it cuts to the division of spirit and soul. And God, it, it cuts to the center of us. 
And so, God, we pray that as we unpack this story, as we dig into this, God, that you would help us understand ourselves better. God, we pray that uh, you would help us understand you better and walk in more and more freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. Uh, okay, so to start with, I want you guys to imagine something for me. Thanks, Caleb. See you, man. It's good hanging out up here, as always. Okay, I want you to imagine something for me. I got this from a guy named Sinclair Scott Ferguson. Uh, he was a, uh, a pastor, actually, in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, pastor of First Presbyterian Church. They're a brilliant guy. Anyway, I digress. Okay, so imagine this with me. Imagine that I take my daughter, Georgia. Have you all seen my daughter, Georgia? She's the cutest kid that's ever lived. Fight me, okay? Uh, she's got pigtails today. I'm pretty sure I sm- smelled some hairspray in there. Yeah, a little hairspray. A little, there was a little design. She's a designer, you know. And so imagine, though, imagine with me. I take Georgia to the mall, and I take her to the toy store, okay? And I show Georgia the teddy bear section. I say, Georgia, do you like those teddy bears? And she goes, oh, yes, Daddy. I love the teddy bears. I say, okay, let's go to the next section. We, we go to the Barbie section, and she's just in love. Right? I'm like, Georgia, you see those Barbies? Yes, Daddy. Do you want those Barbies? Yes, Daddy, I want the Barbies. Okay, she's just bubbling with anticipation. Then we go to the Mickey Mouse aisle, okay? Anybody with a sub-three-year-old knows Mickey Mouse is their favorite thing. Georgia, what do you want to watch today? Mickey Mouse every day. Georgia, do you want this enormous life-size Mickey Mouse? Yes, Daddy, I want that. Then just imagine, I take her out to the courtyard, and I sit her down, and I say, Georgia, you can have none of these things. We're getting in the car and we're leaving. (laughs) How cruel of a father, right? How cruel. But if we're honest, how many of us, when we think about God, and we think about the good things in life, and the things that we see, don't really believe that God wants us to have those things? How often, when when you think about fulfillment, and joy, and purpose, how, how often do you really not believe, like if you're really honest, you really look at our actions, the, the way that we live, the way that we do things, how often we say, I really don't believe that God wants to provide these things for me. Y'all, this is what's at the heart of this story, is you have two characters who genuinely don't believe that they can trust God or that they can find security in God. So what do they do? What do we do? We rebel against God because we really don't trust him to provide the things that we desire or think that we need. So let's look at the text, okay? Uh, We mistake this this text often. I I think if you look at it from a purely secular point of view, this this is a story about two magical trees, right, that God put there, and if you obtain these trees, you get the magic of eternal life, or you would get the magic of wisdom. Y'all, we, we cannot simplify this story down to two magic trees, because it's really not about the trees. Are you all familiar with the story of Samson in the book of Judges? Samson was super strong. If you ever went to Sunday school as a kid, you learned about Samson, and uh, Samson was the one who got blinded, and, and Delilah shaved his head. Are you all tracking with me? If you're with me, say I'm with you. His strength was not in his hair. His strength was in the Lord, right? But God had mercy on him, and as he continued to disobey God, God 
left his strength with him until at the last he shaved his head. And so God withdrew his hand of strength from him. What we see is the exact same thing happening in this story. The power is not in the trees. The power is in God. Uh, John H. Walton, he has a book called The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Uh, if you really want to get lost in neo-Assyrian Mediterranean literature, I recommend that you read this book. I suffered through this for you guys last night. Uh, here's what it says. It says, uh, the trees provide what is only God's to give. He is the source of life. Everybody say life. Which is given by him and found in his presence. Life, this story is saying, is found in the presence of God. He is the center of order. Everybody say order. And wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to discern Order. I love that definition. Relationship with God is the beginning of wisdom. In Genesis, the trees are best understood in context of sacred space rather than isolated trees that happen to be in the garden. What does this mean? This is not a story about finding magic trees. This is a story about the presence of God on earth and what having a relationship with God is all about, what it can bring to you, what it can make available to you. And the results of the fall is that Adam and Eve lose relationship with God. They lose access to the things that God would have for them. And the ethic of this story is that if we look at our lives and we're really honest, if we don't have a relationship with Jesus, we no longer have a relationship with God and access to the life and the wisdom that he offers. You know, the point here is that life is gained in God's presence and wisdom is his gift. He is the source and the center of wisdom. We believe that according to the scriptures, and I can also testify, I can attest from my own life and my relationship with God that God holds the keys to wisdom, life, joy, and peace. But yet, I often, I, I'm not saying you, I, I'm sure you guys would never do this. I seek to satisfy myself in my own ways. I seek to try to figure out how to get the security that I need for myself and try to find fulfillment and freedoms in the way that I see fit. This is what the Bible calls sin. We, we, we see things we want and we say, God, I, I don't believe that you want me to have that. I believe you're, you're going to sit me down like a little kid in the courtyard after you've seen all the great things and no, say, no, you'll have none of that. <laughs> no, you can't have any of these things. You're going to hell, Stanley. <laughs> I told you I'd work it in. <laughs> That's an office reference. There are some people who are not laughing. It's a, it's a, it's a reference from the office. <laughs> going to double, H-E double hockey, hockey sticks. Okay. Uh, Yo, we believe that God doesn't want us to have fulfillment in our relationships. If we're honest, we look at the way that we live. We believe he doesn't want us to have self-confidence, that he can't be our source of self-confidence, that he can't be the one who helps us have obedient children. Can I get an amen from somebody? A loving spouse, enough money, sexual fulfillment. We're going to talk about that more in a couple of weeks. Social status and influence. He's not the source. We go to these things. We can't find purpose in life. We can't find healing from our pain and our trauma. And I think for most of us, we would say that we don't believe he's the solution for the social issues of our day. In our heart of hearts, I'm speaking generally, none of you guys would believe any of these things. In our heart of hearts, though, as a human race, 
We believe that we cannot trust God. Genesis 2, 15 through 16. Go, go with me there. I've got it behind me. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Y'all know what I hate more than anything? When somebody tells me not to do something, and I say, why not? And they say, because I told you so. Right? That is the least satisfying answer that any parent could ever give. And most of the time, parents give that because I'm learning. They're just utterly exasperated right, with all the other solutions. So they're just saying, I just, I just told you so. That's why not. Uh, when I was like three or four, my mom was teaching me how to cook, which is pretty bold. Bold move, mom, if you're uh, watching in online. It's probably the only one. Uh, uh, going worldwide, people. You're baiting me. You're baiting me by saying nothing. Uh, my mom got a stool, and she got me up on the counter, she teach me how to cook, and she, she got the food out of the, uh, the skillet, and she, she set it to the side, and I reached for it. And she said, Bronson, don't touch that. And I said, why not? It's not hot. She said, trust me, just don't touch it. I said, it's not hot. She goes, yes, it is. Don't touch it. And so I reached my hand over, and I stick my thumb down on a skillet that's been off the burner for like two seconds. I'm brilliant. Okay, I always have been. Uh, <laughs> And I get like a second degree bubbled up burn. I'm screaming. My mom's like, I told you not to do that. But she didn't explain to me the science behind how metal conducts heat and all those sorts of things. So I didn't trust her. What God is saying in this, God's not providing an explanation. He's not saying how they're going to die, what that's going to look like, why they shouldn't do it. He just says, don't do it or there'll be a consequence. Here's, here's what he's saying in essence. He's saying to Adam, trust me with the tree. Trust me with this one thing. He said, you can eat freely from anything else. Trust me with this one thing, and you'll have life. Let's look and see what happens. Genesis 3, 1 through 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees of the garden? Of course, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it or you will die. This is Eve's account of what God said. Three things are happening here. Number one, she omits the word freely. Number two, she adds, nor shall you touch it. And number three, she fails to remind the serpent that the Lord God had commanded them to obey. John Tyson said it this way. He said, she takes from God's word, she adds to God's word, and she changed God's word. She moves from a posture of submission to modification and ultimately accusation. She takes from God's word, she adds to God's word, and she changed God's word. Y'all, this is the original pattern of rebellion and sin. We modify God's word to fit our desires, and then we try to fill our desires in the way that we see fit because ultimately we don't trust God. Notice this. The serpent doesn't go directly against God. 
he speaks towards her words about God. He asks her what God said, and then he deals with what she says. Y'all, what you believe is incredibly important. The way that you talk about God, the way that you think about God, this is why we have to study the word. This is why we have to understand who God is. Because the truth is, is that when the enemy comes to accuse you and speak to you and deceive you, this is the method that has been used from the beginning. He'll ask you, did God really say? Can I give you something for free here? If you find yourself in tension and opposition with God's word, that's a good place to dig in and to study and to be slow to make a decision, okay? Get in there, understand, understand what's going on. Read, ask pastors, dig into it. Because what you develop, the language, you know, theology is, is merely the study of words. Think about this. It's the study of God, but it's the study of how we talk about God. How we talk about God is incredibly important. Because look at the next thing that the serpent did. He didn't say, what did the Lord God say? See, that, that's translated, what, what did Jehovah Elohim say? That's a personal name of God. This is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. What he said is, he said, what did God say? He took the Lord God out, and so he just said, what did generic Elohim God say? When the enemy's accusing you or trying to deceive you, he's never going to remind you of the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. That's the God of love. That's the God who's there for you. That's the God who's near for you. He's never going to remind you of that God. He's always going to remind you of the God of generic morality. Because when there's generic morality, but there's no relationship, there's no life change, there's no trust, the God of the scripture is the God of the promise. He's not just the God of rules to do this and do this, but there's no reasons behind it. He's the God of the covenant. He's the God of the promise. So what does this look like in our lives? What areas are you tempted to say, did God really say? In the way that we spend our money, the way that we seek fulfillment, our futures, the way we seek to find value. Genesis 3, 4 through 6. Let's keep going. It says, you won't die, the sermon replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. I wonder if there's any areas that you're convinced that God won't care for you. It's the areas where we're convinced that God won't supply for our needs, that we trust in the least, and that we're tempted to rebel. It could be in relationships, friendships, with your spouse, with your finances, with sexual fulfillment, with purpose in your life. Remember, when you come against these things, the enemy is never going to say, remember the God of the promise. <laughs> He's going to say, remember that God of rules, the God of behavior. So what do we do when we believe that the way of God won't fulfill our needs? We put ourselves in the place of God. We put ourselves on the throne of our lives and we try to get everything to orbit around us. We seek what we want, no matter how it ultimately affects us and no matter how negatively it affects others. 
In our world, y'all, this is celebrated as a supreme American ethic. I'll sum it up like this. You do you, boo-boo. Isn't that what we say? You do you, boo-boo. Whatever makes you happy. Don't let anybody, don't let anybody tell you not to do what makes you happy. The deception is that if something makes you happy, it won't negatively affect the people around you. And y'all, that is an absolute fallacy. Seek fulfillment in the way that you want to seek it. Seek happiness in the way that you want to seek it. Live however you want to live. And if anyone tells you not to do that, they don't love you, right? That's the ethic of our world. And I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up like this. We call it freedom, right? Supreme ethic of American culture is we want to be free. But let, let me present it to you like this. Let's think about it like this. Imagine we use me as an example. You guys could all see me doing this. Let's just say I spend the first 65 years of my life eating fried chicken and pork rinds and pork fat and just anything disgusting that you can think of because that's how I like to eat, if I'm honest. I want to eat ribs. Uh, the, the more fat in them, the better. Amen? Where, where are God's people at? See that hand? See that hand? Okay. Uh, But then also imagine at the same time, so I love to eat. I love to eat whatever I want to eat. At the same time, I've got a family, and I love my family. I love to be around my family. At this point, hopefully, Georgia has presented me with grandchildren, right? No pressure. And I love to be around my family, love to be around my children. And I go to the doctor, and he says, Bronson, your heart is a disaster. (laughs) You've got to quit eating straight pig fat. You've got to quit eating the pork rinds. You've got to lay the fried chicken down. You've got to go vegan. You know, all these things. If you don't, you're going to have a heart attack and die. I have a competition for the things that I find valuable. I have a competition of freedom. Is he infringing on my freedom by saying, if you continue to do that, that's going to kill you? Or is he giving me the choice to have true life? What I I would submit to you is that when God gives us regulations, when God tells us how we should live, it's not to take life from us, but it's to give life to us. But so often, we have a short lens on life. Fitz said this in the last service. If it doesn't affect us negatively right now, we start to believe that it'll never negatively affect us. That's the way sin works. It it creeps in. One of the things that, that... the, the, the serpent in the story is saying, it's hard to see in the English, but if you dig into the Hebrew, what he's saying is, is that God didn't really say you die immediately, did you? Did he? You won't surely drop dead. He makes everything about the moment instead of thinking about the long-term provision and plan of God. Who can relate to that? How often does God say, get what you want right now. Don't worry about the future. How, how often does the enemy say that? But God's saying, if you trust me with the tree, if you trust me with the moment, if you trust me with this thing, I'll bring you life. And I'll bring you hope. And I'll bring you peace. Fitz, you coach football, right? Somebody wants to be a football player. What do they need to do? That's right. Yo, if we want to live a full life, 
We've got to learn the things that God wants us to do. We've got to submit to them. A football coach is not infringing. There are some kids who are never successful as football players because they don't want to do what somebody else tells them to do. What is that? That is rebellion. And we judge them and we're like, man, you're never going to live up to your potential. But how often do we do this? I wonder what this could possibly look like in your life. The enemy said, you will be like God. We put ourselves in the place of God because ultimately, listen, in our heart of hearts, as a human race, we don't believe we can get our value from God. Callie likes to make fun of me that my middle school days were my glory days because they were. (laughs) Any, like, spectacular story I have in my life, it's always from middle school. She's like, okay, here we go. Why? I got a girlfriend, okay? I got some social acceptance. I was blossoming physically, all right? And so I made the soccer team. The first, first sixth grader, only three sixth graders made it. I made the soccer team. Not a big deal. It was an enormous deal, but made the football team. I had a great fall camp, okay? And everybody's like, Bronson is the best running back that we've ever seen. Now, I don't know. Looking at me, I know you can believe it, all right? But they, they, they had hung their hopes on my ability as a running back, so much so we had a rival middle school. Remember, this is middle school. <laughs> we had a rival middle school called Lakeside Middle. So Riverside Middle and Lakeside Middle were both feeder schools into something called Lakeside High School. So Lakeside High School had their first game, and uh, we all showed up in our jerseys because that's what little middle school kids do, right? Showed up in our jerseys, and our team's talking trash. To, so Riverside's talking trash to Lakeside Middle. And... Uh, they're all my offensive linemen. They're, they're gassing me up. They're like, Bronson Duke is the greatest running back in the history of the CSRA, and he's going to run all over you this year. And I'm like, that's right. You know, I'm behind him. And the other guys were like, you haven't seen our guy? This guy's nothing. And I look over, and I see the guy they're pointing at, and I immediately knew I was nothing, <laughs> Okay. I immediately knew that this guy was a real deal football player. And I could see in his eyes, he had 0% of intimidation or really care for my athletic ability. Like, he was not impressed with me at all. Okay, he's looking, looking down at me. And in that moment, I remember it, I was, I was crushed. Like, I could see there was a difference between me and this guy. Y'all, so often in life, we store up all this security in our, for ourselves in ourselves. Here's what this looks like. Maybe like me, like you were a little bit athletic and you started thinking, I am God's gift to the sport of football. But when you meet somebody who's better than you, if that's where your identity's found, you'll be devastated. You'll be crippled with insecurity. If, if your security is in your looks, when you get around somebody who's better looking than you, you can't stand it. If your security is in your intelligence, when you get around somebody who's smarter than you, it destroys you. If your security is in your wealth, when you get around somebody who's wealthier than you, it makes you angry. We want to take them down. Why? because we've elevated ourselves to the place that only God can be. We've elevated these these places that are supposed to be peripheral things 
to the place where we find our ultimate soul satisfaction and security. And, and what I want to tell you today is that if you do that, at some point, you're going to realize that it's not enough. In verse 7, it talks about how Adam and Eve fashioned clothes for themselves because they realized they were naked. You'll listen to me. Autonomy from God will never bring you security. It will always bring you shame. And the lie of the world is that if you get enough security, if you get enough independence, that you'll feel strong inside, but that is never the case. What I love in the story is that God in his love and his grace, it says he fashioned clothes for them. He loved them. And he set forth a plan. So how's the gospel, the practical answers to the problem of trust, the problem of security? Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that happened in the Old Testament. Every law, he fulfilled it. Every regulation, he fulfilled it. Every civil duty, he fulfilled it. And he didn't just fulfill the stories, the law, the regulations, but he fulfilled the origin stories as well. You see, Adam in the Garden of Eden was told by God, if you trust me with the tree, you'll have life. In the story of Jesus, at the end of his life, he's lived all these things. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. This place is literally called the place of the crushing. Neil and I were talking about this this week. It's where they crushed, it was the olives, right? To make olive oil, they crushed these olives. Adam, when God said, trust me with the tree in the Garden of Eden, Adam didn't trust him. And instead of life, he got death. God said to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you trust me with the tree, I will crush you, but I'll bring about life for everyone else. Adam said no to his tree. He didn't trust God with his tree, but Jesus, the second Adam, the fulfillment, he trusted God with the tree. He went to the cross that you and I deserved. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again in victory. It says in Genesis that, that God removed the people from the tree of eternal life. When Jesus obeyed God with his tree, God brought back access to eternal life for you and for me. And here's what he says. If you'll just trust me with the cross of Jesus, that it's enough for you, that it's enough to cover your sin, that it's enough to unify you back to the covenant-keeping God of the promise who loves you, who designed you and has a plan for you. If you'll trust me with that tree, you will have life and you will have life forever. You'll have the fullness of joy, the fullness of peace. If you'll trust me with the tree, with the tree of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And so my question for you this morning is where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself trusting God with the tree? Do you find yourself trusting God with what God has said about you? 
Or do you find yourself storing up security in things that will always let you down, things that will always fail you? I want to give you a, a couple of things, and then we're going we're gonna to close here. Number one, true sign. A true sign of an encounter with God is repentance. You know, any worldview that tells you that you're loved just where you are, but you never have to change, does not love you. Any worldview that doesn't require you and call you out from the things that are killing you does not love you. God says, I love you right where you're at, but I love you too much to keep you there. So one of the proofs of the filling of the Holy Spirit is a hatred for our sin. What are those places in you? What are those places that you recognize? I was confessing to somebody earlier today. For me, one of them is pride. Not letting pride roll up and destroy my life. I hate it. I want to push it away. You know, we all have a whisper. We all have a whisper that there's something wrong with us. And the gospel is that we can now say, yep, you know what, you're right, but that's not where I find my security anymore. The gospel gives you the ability to say, you know what, you're right, I have done the wrong things, and you know what, I've continued to do wrong things, but I no longer find myself in those things. The gospel of Jesus is that you're now dead to sin and you're alive to Christ. It says in Romans chapter 6, it says, consider yourselves as dead to sin, alive to Christ. What does that mean? That means when the devil accuses me of things I actually did, I can say that Bronson Duke is dead and he no longer reigns in my life, but I'm alive to Jesus. And so here's my question for you. Have you received that kind of life? Have you received that kind of hope? You know, the gospel of Jesus is not simply the minimum requirement to get you into heaven, although it's that. It's the power of God to change your life today. Some of you guys, you've given up on that. I got time for one more. Are y'all familiar with the Wizard of Oz? Dorothy keeps saying, if I can just get to see the wizard, I'll be able to get what I want. I'll be able to get home. And then she sees behind the curtain, and it's this fat guy with a mustache who has no power to actually change her life. That's not the story of the gospel. That's not the story of the scriptures. And for someone in here, I know, you've been going through life, and that's, that's this view of God is that he can't actually change things. I want to tell you, he has the power not only to save your soul, but to change your life. He's done it for me. This is my testimony. And I believe he can do it for you. I want to read one quote, and we're going to take some time. We're going to respond to God. Sinclair Ferguson said this. He said, repentance is a characteristic of the whole life, not an action of the single moment. We're going to start adding some things into our services. We've been wrestling with over the past, really for me, a couple of years, how can we respond better in church? And, you know, we always do the hands. We're going to continue to do that here in a second. Some of you guys are going to raise your hands. We're going to pray for you but we wanted to add some more actions. We wanted to add some more things that, that, that you can do that, that's symbolic of the things that God's doing in your life. And so in, in your seats, there's a card. Each and every one of you guys, you have a card. And, and, and here's what I want you to do. During this, 
this time, God may have spoken something to you. Something may have stirred in your heart where you're like, man, I need to change this. You're gonna have an opportunity. We're gonna go into worship. You can go leave it at the foot of the cross. And every week from now until Jesus comes back, our plan is to have different stations around here where you can respond to God. And so I've got two questions for you. Number one, what's God speaking to you? What's God saying to you? What's he whispering to you? And number two, what's he asking you to do about it?